Um, can I encourage you, if you have a, a Bible, uh, either a physical one or an electronic one, can I encourage you to open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We're continuing on with our series, and we've arrived at probably one of the most famous passages in Acts, which is Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm just going to read the bulk of this chapter, verses 1 to 40. So let's hear Acts chapter 2. We're going to read, starting at verse 1, and make our way down to verse 40. Let's hear God speak to us. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest in each one of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They heard this sound and a crowd came together in bewilderment because one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Pytharia, and Pamelaria, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Jerusalem, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. And Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, and my body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in, his, in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. 
Saying what has come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, but he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the Israelites be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far all, all, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about three thousand were added to their numbers that day. Amen. This is probably, I think, one of the most famous passages of the New Testament. And yet, simultaneously, I would say this is probably one of the passages in the New Testament that we are most confused by. And most of our popular conversation and understanding of what happens at Pentecost misses the point. Whenever we read this passage, I think so often we can want it to address arguments and debates that maybe we have in Bible-believing evangelical churches like ours in our current age, which whenever we see Holy Spirit mentioned, we often want to ask, well, what does this mean about gifts of the Holy Spirit? There's talking about people prophesying, there's fire raining down from heaven, and sometimes people can maybe think, okay, we now need to ask the questions about how does, what does that mean literally for us today? What does this look like for a church service today? How does this impact our church lives today? And ironically, in focusing on what we think the Holy Spirit should be doing and what we think the Holy Spirit should be doing right now, we miss the significance of what the Holy Spirit did on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was not simply just the coming of the Holy Spirit, but it represented a seismic change in what God was doing in the world. Have you ever wondered as you've read through the Old Testament why you don't offer animal sacrifices anymore? Have you ever wondered why you don't follow the law of the Old Testament anymore? Have you ever wondered why you don't follow the cleanliness laws anymore? Have you wondered what was the moment whenever sacrifices that were offered in the temple in Jerusalem no longer mattered? What was the moment whenever the church of the Old Testament became the church of the New Testament? What was the moment whenever we transitioned from being a Jewish religion to being the Christian religion? What was the moment? The moment was Pentecost. This gets summed up in two words the Bible uses that we're hopefully familiar with, which is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, that was how we worship God. In the Old Testament, which is the first part of the Bible, 
But in the new covenant, we see how God is doing something new in light of the coming of Jesus. And Pentecost is like the final crescendo and praise that Jesus does on this earth as he carries out his, his work. We're probably very familiar with talking about the hope of Christians in the death of Jesus and him dying for our sins and in his descending to the dead and his death and being buried and his resurrection conquering sin and death. But as much part of the ministry of Jesus and as much part of the relevance of Jesus' life for you today is the fact that what you saw last week, that he ascended and is at the right hand of the Father, that he is praying for us now as an ascended Lord, but also that he sent a helper. He sent someone and something. He sent the Holy Spirit. And that's what Pentecost represents. It is like the changing of the chapter between the old covenant and now as we enter into the new covenant. And we're going to see five different ways that we transition from the old to the new. And I know what you're thinking, five? Like, Five, that's meant to be three. I'm so sorry. Trust me, the first two are longer than the rest of them, so don't worry if you're looking at your watch after the first couple of points, but we'll, trust me, it, it won't be as long as you think it'll be. The first big change we see taking place is we, we see how God's presence on the day of Pentecost moves from being in the temple to being his presence in people. It moves from being in the temple to being his presence in people. We see this if you look down with me at the start of the chapter whenever we read in verse three, that they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest in each of them. Fire, fire in the Bible often represents God's presence. But if you were in the old covenant, the old testament, and if somebody were to ask you, well, where's God's presence? You would say that God's presence wasn't resting upon his believers. It wasn't coming down in the way it came at Pentecost. You would say where God's presence was in one place and one place only. God's presence was in the temple. That's why Jesus calls the temple my father's house, because that's where in some ways God lived. And in the temple, it was like a big Russian doll, where the closer you got to the center of the temple, the holier it got. You had courts for the Gentiles, courts that were only for men, courts for the priests. And then in the very, very center, there was this tiny little court called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant that contained the, the Ten Commandments written on stone. The Ark of the Covenant was a, a large golden box. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'll have a, a rough idea of what it would have looked like. But it was this majestic looking box. And on top of that box was said to be God's footstool. It was where he rested his feet upon the earth. The point where heaven and earth met was upon the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And it was just God's feet, you know, feet in the ancient world were the, in some ways the most unclean part of the body. But that fact that this was where God's feet were meant to rest made it the holiest place in all the earth to the point where it wasn't just that there was only one person who could go inside it. The only person who could go inside it was the high priest, and he could only go on one day a year, a special day called Yom Kippur, which is the day whenever they would offer sacrifices for the sins of all the people of Israel, and he would go into the Holy of Holies behind a heavy, heavy curtain to offer and pray on behalf of the people of Israel. 
And as the high priest went in, they would tie bells to his clothing and a rope around his waist because there was a fear that because he was entering into such a holy, holy place that he might be killed at the mere sense of the presence of God and people would have to pull him out by the rope. This was meant to be the holiest and most sacred place on all the earth where even, even just the idea that you would be in the presence of God would strike fear into you that his holiness might overwhelm the high priest and kill him. This is how holy the presence of God was in the old covenant. Now, we're in the new covenant and we believe that God is in all of us. God's heart rests in all of those who believe in the name of Jesus. God's spirit indwells all of us who confess Jesus as Lord. And do you notice a problem? How is it that a holy high God who is terrifying to go before in the holy of holies can remain and dwell in sinful people like us? who frequently break God's laws and frequently do things that are abhorrent in his eyes and against his rules and commands. How is it God goes from dwelling in somewhere spectacularly holy and separate to indwelling in all of us? This is where fire comes in. Fire represents God's presence, but it also represents God's wrath, and it also represents God's purity. It means a lot in the Bible. Whenever we see people who have transgressed against God in a very special way, God's fire comes to the fore. This is why what happens in Sodom, this is what happens whenever two priests in, in Leviticus offer sacrifices that are incorrect before God called strange fire, and they are consumed by the fire of God. It represents his justice and his wrath, but it also represents how he purifies and sanctifies. Whenever in the old covenant they would offer sacrifices before God, they were burnt sacrifices. They were sacrifices that went on fire because the burning purified in some way. So the question becomes, well, where's the fire that purifies us? Where's the sacrifice that we offer up as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord that purifies us? Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 50, says that he desired fire to fall upon the earth, and he would be distressed until it was completed. He desired fire to fall upon the earth, and he would be distressed until it was completed. Now, we might think fire falling upon the earth, that sounds like kind of judgment, apocalyptic type thing, but I, I, that's not where Jesus is going whenever he says that, because that would imply that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father at the minute, somehow distressed, and I think we can all agree that Jesus is not distressed at the minute. So the question then becomes, when does God's fire, when does God's wrath come down in a special way upon the earth, and something is completed, and something is finished? The fire reminds us not of the literal fire, but of the burning wrath of God that Jesus experienced on the cross on our behalf. To put it bluntly, the, the, the fire of this, these tongues of flame is a reminder, a subtle reminder and pointer to the fact that on our behalf, 
Jesus was burned, not with tongues of fire, but with the wrath of God against the sin that we deserved. He was our burnt offering to the Lord, offered up on our behalf so that we might be declared clean and righteous and good, and that Pentecost could happen, that His Spirit could come, and that we wouldn't be like the old covenant anymore, having to meet God in a temple in a building, but He would rest and remain and dwell in all who confess the name of His Son. The second thing we see going on here is that God goes from being external to internal, external to internal. As God's Spirit comes into all of His people and dwells in all of His people, the Spirit is no longer external but internal. It's inside them. I think at this point, we want to take a moment and just make sure that we aren't borrowing into a Christianized version of what the world might say. Because I think often whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit being inside us and the idea of God being inside us, our world quite likes that chat. Quite, our culture quite likes to talk about what's inside us and the, the purity of what's inside us. You know, it was the great prophet Mariah Carey who once said, you really have to look inside yourself. And whenever you look inside yourself, you'll find your own inner strength. Because what does our culture believe? That if you look inside yourself, you will find the power and the potential to accomplish whatever you dream and whatever you desire. And sometimes I think we can buy into a Christianized version of that, which is Pentecost is God coming in to add up what's already there, to add to the inner strength that's already there, to take what's good in us and to make it better. But really, it's far greater than that and far richer than that. Whenever we read about wind in the Bible, as we read this sound of uh, verse 2 of a sound blowing of a violent wind, Wind always represents the coming of the Spirit in the Bible. Um, The Hebrew word for wind and spirit, ruach, is always interchangeable. And in the New Testament, they they come from a a similar root. Um, One's pneuma, the other one is muno. And the idea is, is that whenever we see the Spirit at work, God's wind is blowing. And the first time we see God's Spirit at work is in creation itself. Genesis 1, verse 2, we read of how the Spirit blew over the waters or hovered over the waters. And the idea is is that whenever we see the Spirit at work, He's creating. And in the Old Covenant, we would have said God created the external world. But the good news of Pentecost is that now with the Spirit within us as believers, God is recreating us from the inside out. Whenever we first become a Christian and we are filled with the promised Holy Spirit, we are infused with a new life and a new light that can come from nowhere else but Him. And God makes us new from the inside out. Have you ever wondered why it's always older people who are the holiest people that you know? Um, Like, I think in my family and all the holiest people are always women well into their 80s. Um, And the reason for that is that is a lifetime of God's Spirit making them new from the inside out. And that's what He's doing with you. He's making you new from the inside out, getting rid of the old and replacing the new, taking what was excellent 
taking his external work and putting it to work in you internally. The third thing we see at work here is we see how God's Spirit goes from resting on the one to resting on the many. There was a prophecy that was quoted in the bit that we read from the book of Joel, starting in verse 17, where it says, in the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Now, whenever we read about prophecy in the Bible, it's really important that we don't equate it with just looking into the future because there's kind of a caricature of prophecy in our, future, in our society that says prophecy is knowing what's going to happen in the future. That's not what prophecy is in the Bible. Prophecy in the Bible is knowing God in a special way. Knowing God in a special way. That's why David was a prophet. Why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. Because he knew God in a special way. And the person who would have known God in the most special way in the Old Testament would have been the high priest, the person who went into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies to experience that, that greater sense of presence that nobody else would feel. And I wonder, what would you ask him if you were to meet him whenever that high priest came out of that center point where God was made to dwell on the earth? What would you ask him? But all want to ask him, well, what's it like? What's it like to be so close to God? What's it like to be so close to his presence? What, it's, what is it like to be near somebody so holy, so wonderful, so majestic, so glorious? And yet the great news of Pentecost is that all of us have that special knowledge that that high priest had as he came out of the Holy of Holies. And in fact, we know it far greater and far richer because we do not know God simply as the one who presides in the Holy of Holies, but we know God as Father. And we know his presence and his delight in a richer and a fuller way than any saint of the Old Testament would have known. The reason why we all prophesy in some way is because everyone who is a Christian knows God's presence in a special kind of way that no one else can know. Now, it doesn't mean that we will all have the gift of prophecy. That's what we read whenever Paul's speaking to the, the church in Corinth, and he asks, are all prophets, are all apostles, implying that not everybody is a prophet and not everybody is an apostle? But we all have that special knowledge of God that no saint in the Old Testament could have known, because we know what it is to know him closely and intimately as a father. Fourthly, we see how God uses Pentecost to spread his message throughout all the earth. In the ancient world, um, religion was tied to a geographic region. If you were in Babylon, the Babylonians would have their gods. If you were in Greece, the Greeks would have their gods. And if you were in Rome, the Romans would have their gods. And every little hole in the hedge and valley go backwards in between would have their own god and shrine. Everywhere had a god connected to it, except the Israelites. They were the one people who believed that God was over the, all, everything. And we might say that the ancient world, that was very nice and quaint, but we've moved on from them. But the reality is, is that religion is still very geographically bound in our culture today. We might want to say, well, you know, you know a good secular ideal about the future is really, the fu is really what's going to come about, and religion's just a, an old tokenistic thing that we'll all grow out of. But the reality is, is that idea 
That very idea that secularism is the future and atheism is the, the neutral state of all humanity, that's a very Western idea. And the only place it's actually growing is in the West. Everywhere else is decreasing rapidly. The idea that secularism is the future only exists within the West. And the other religions, such as Islam, exist mainly in the Middle East and North Africa. Buddhism exists mainly in Central and Southern Asia. Hinduism is almost exclusively within India. Nearly every single religion on the face of the earth is bound to a geographic region, except Christianity. Christianity is the only religion that is expanding beyond every other religion's boundaries. If you were to look at a graph of where the, the density of all the Christians in the world live, you'll see that it's nearly an even split across all the continents. There's even Christians in Antarctica. And here we see what God is doing at Pentecost. There was a curse in the Old Testament in, Gen in Genesis 11 whenever the people tried to build a tower to God in the Tower of Babel, and he confused their languages and scattered them across the earth. And here we see God in some ways doing the same again. He confuses the people. He gives, they speak all different languages and people think they're drunk. And they scatter after Pentecost across the rest of the known world. Except it's not a curse anymore. It's a huge blessing. And you will, hopefully some of you, will have encountered the blessing that it is to see how the gospel transcends over every other boundary that this world has. I lived in Scotland for a year, and whenever I was in Scotland, I worked a lot with international folks. Um, and I remember in particular one family who we got to know quite well were an Indian family um, who were overworking uh, in the hospital in, in the city I was living in. And, you know, on the face of it, we shared absolutely nothing in common. Um, Daniel, the, the husband's favorite sport, uh, they loved to chat about, I think it was cricket. And I, I'm allergic to sport. And... They would watch different TV programs, you know, they would listen to different music their whole lives. They've grown up in a completely different culture. Any cultural reference or any joke you might try to make would, wouldn't, wouldn't land quite the same because they hadn't grown up with the same TV shows and the same books and the same media that we grew up with. We were from, he was from a big city, I'm from Balego Backwards, you know, we were from completely different areas. And yet, I loved spending time with them because there was one thing that we shared in common that was greater than everything. That was the hope that we both had, the gospel we both had, the good news of Jesus dead, buried, and raised that we both had. And the only reason we both knew it, the only reason we'd both come to know of it was because of Pentecost, because the gospel had scattered and transcended every boundary that there was, be it race, be it culture, be it class, to the point where every tongue, tribe, and nation is coming to know Jesus as Lord. This is the amazing thing of Pentecost, where we see finally a mystery that becomes a reality. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, talks about a mystery in Ephesians 3, verse 6, where he says that there's a mystery as the Gentiles become partakers in the gospel of Jesus. 
Here is the great mystery that Pentecost makes known to us. How people like us, who are on the other side of the world from where Jesus grew up, are able to call him Lord along with thousands of tongues and millions of people across not just this island or this land, but across every nation. As God makes the mystery of how he will dwell amongst man, of how he will redeem and save people and bring them to himself, that mystery has been made known. What is the main purpose of the Holy Spirit? What is the main purpose of the Spirit's coming? It's to make Jesus known. The Spirit loves to glorify the Son. Do you notice where Peter's sermon began to take us as we were reading through it? It ended with the the petition that whenever Peter said, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The mystery that God is making known through Pentecost is that Jesus is Lord and Messiah over every nation and over every person who lives on the face of the earth because he is the only one who offers us a perfect and plentiful salvation in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful good news of Pentecost where we get to see what you are doing. We get to praise your wondrous works as your gospel goes out across every tongue, tribe, and nation. And Lord, would we take great, great hope in it and would we praise you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.